Hey everyone, it's Michael Bauman from the Ringer MLB Show. Just wanted to give you a preview of what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be uh, wrapping up the first round of the MLB playoffs and uh, the first couple games of the division series, including the thrilling Rays-Yankees game from Tuesday night. If you want to check out some of our stuff at the Ringer, Ben wrote about the Clayton Kershaw playoff narrative and how that might uh, how that might play out going forward this season. Zach wrote about interdivisional interdivisional regular season matchups in this. Uh, division series of interdivisional matchups. So you should check out that and much more on the ringer.com. And we'll get into the podcast right after this. The Ringer MLB show is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet on your favorite sports online? Well, with FanDuel Sportsbook, there are more ways to bet. If you can dream it, you can probably bet it through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-unders, props, and in-game bets all in an easy-to-use app. And there are more ways to cash out. When you win, you can receive your winnings in your bank account in as little as 48 hours through safe and secure processes. Check out the FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel, more ways to win. 21 and over and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman and I am a staff writer at the Ringer. Uh, joining me today are Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Hello. And a man for whom I only have one greeting on this the week of the new Borat trailer, Yak Shamash, Ben Lindbergh. <laughs> Good morning. A rare morning recording for us. We're up early. We are not only up early, we're up so early that Bobby Wagner, who lives in the past in many respects, most important that he lives on the West Coast and all three of us are east of the Mississippi, Bobby is not awake. So he is going to record this or he's going to edit this later uh, after after we record this, which means as far as I'm concerned, we can do whatever we want. So I think that's a, a really... Uh, a really exciting new frontier for this podcast. We'll probably spend a good 20 minutes rehashing the 1924 World Series, which is <laughs> gripping content. <laughs> that yeah. would happen anytime a producer does not show up for this podcast, but particularly today. I was on I was on blog duty last night and I wrote about the Rays Yankees games and I not only rehashed the 1924 World Series, I made a comment about how other people complain about how we rehash the 1924 <laughs> World Series too much. Uh, so we're just going to do that more uh, more often. So we're going to get real quickly to the first couple of series that are going to take place this afternoon, and then we'll uh, go back into uh, the night games from uh, from last night. But let's start with Atlanta, Miami and get that one out of the way. So if you're listening to this on Wednesday, you can have the context before all this analysis becomes horribly out of date. Uh, Zach Cram, what happened to the Atlanta offense in their first encounter with the enemy? Well, it helped that they didn't have to face Trevor Bauer or Luis Castillo anymore, and we saw what made this team one of the best offenses in the regular season. Ronald Acuna hit a home run, Travis Darno hit a home run, Dan B. Swanson hit a home run, and that helps. They definitely woke up in the later innings, and there was a, a brouhaha around Ronald Acuna that we can get into, but I think this series kind of 
encapsulates one of the trends I'm watching in the division series and also the league championship series next week, which is the lack of off days within the series, I think is going to lead to a lot more offense. I wrote about this a week ago, and we've seen this in just the first couple of games. It's only six games in between the four series, but teams are averaging five and a half runs per game. And that's coming against the top and second best pitchers on each team. So what's going to happen when we get into these the, the back end of the rotations and the bullpens might be tired. I think we saw that yesterday in this Atlanta game where I'm not sure if there are off days with the, within the series, if Sandy Alcantara stays in for as long as he did. And I think that's a, a theme we've seen throughout the series so far. And Atlanta with the depth up and down their lineup, the fact that guys like Darno and Adam Duvall have had career years, I think is really poised to take a, a poised to take advantage of the Marlins lack of pitching depth. Yeah, and as you mentioned in your PSAC, it's not just that teams have to start pitchers they might skip in another year. Fourth starters, fifth starters, the guys who usually don't get much of a share of postseason innings, if any. It's also that teams have really gravitated toward this model where they don't use relievers on back-to-back-to-back days or even back-to-back days sometimes and the strings where pitchers would sometimes be in four straight games or five straight games, that's just non-existent now. And not that the Marlins have a, a great or deep bullpen to begin with, so I don't think it's that surprising to see the Braves' offense, which is great, breakthrough against the Marlins' pen, which is not. But I think that's part of it, that you just really have to ration your relievers because they haven't trained for this. And I guess you could say, well, they're fresh because you stayed away from using them that way all year long. So now in October, with an offseason ahead of you, you can afford to ride them harder than you normally would. Maybe, but on the other hand, you haven't conditioned them. You haven't built them up to do that. And so you can't really ask them to start doing it now. And so you are almost inevitably going to get into situations where you can't bring in your best guy and maybe you get yourself into trouble by anticipating those situations before they even develop and saying, okay, well, I can't use this guy today because I might have to use him tomorrow or the next day. And in October, you never really know if they're going to be next days, at least beyond the next couple. I could see both sides of this argument from Don Mattingly's perspective, uh, but it was it was striking that it's weird almost to see somebody to see a starting pitcher pitching in the seventh inning, having, having allowed three runs in the, the playoffs these days. And I think that the, the couple times that Alcantara got touched up, uh, belies how well he pitched. I think he was, it, it's defensible, but it was definitely Don Mattingly trying to squeeze an extra inning out of his top starting pitcher, which you don't really see managers do that much anymore. And it's a really difficult adjustment to make looking ahead to no off days, the number of times that like just looking ahead at this schedule, I thought, oh, there's only going to be two games on Wednesday because both AL series are going to be in hiatus. Like I'm still going to be shocked when there are four this afternoon. But yeah, it's I think this was a missed opportunity for uh, for Miami. I think more than the Braves, they really had to come out and take this first game, considering how good that offense. This was the highest scoring offense in baseball. Uh, this year, considering that the Braves might have even less starting pitching depth than than Miami, uh, this was a, a real missed opportunity to be up late in this game, and then it just all collapsed. And I think, from Atlanta's perspective on the pitching side, I have been very uh, skeptical of the pitchers beyond Freed and Ian Anderson. I know 
Mike, we disagree about the quality of Kyle Wright at the, at the number three spot. I don't know but- that we disagree. I, you know, I said that he's been fine for the past month, which is not exactly a ringing endorsement, but. I think we can both agree also that when you get into the number four and five spots, if it gets that far, Atlanta's in real trouble. But I don't know the, who they would throw in yeah. that situation. <laughs> so what they have going for them is a deep bullpen. And I think if you look at the top guys, like Will Smith is really good, but I don't think you would put him on the same level as a Josh Hader or an Aralvis Chapman. But what they do have is a lot of depth. And that matters when, as Ben said, guys aren't necessarily capable of going three days in a row, let alone four, five, six, seven, which might need to happen when you get into the championship series. But we saw this as early as game one against Cincinnati, where they held the Reds scoreless for a long time, even after Max Fried was taken out with guys like Melanson and Will Smith and Tyler Matzik, who was out of the majors for half a decade before coming back this year and pitching really well. So I think that's where, as long as Atlanta could have won one of the first two games, which they now have, they're in position to turn games three, potentially four and five into more of a bullpen clash. And I think they have a real advantage there. So let's talk about, I think, the the most exciting bit to come out from this series. I wrote about how the two ALDS series would be uh, sort of a pressure cooker environment with all the, the history between those teams. It turns out that the real nasty series is shaping up to be this battle for the southeastern United States. So you're our resident culture wars expert, Ben. What do you make of <laughs> the the latest uh, latest dust up around Ronald Acuna? So Acuna got plunked in this game and then he tweeted, they have to hit me because they don't get me out. He posted on his Instagram. Also, I'd like to take this time to apologize to absolutely nobody, nobody in all caps. And then on the Marwin side, Miguel Rojas complained about Acuna too, about a slide into second on a force out and Rojas tweeted, nobody talks about that. Who cares about a middle infielder getting spiked on the knee? So there's history here, obviously, between these two teams. And partly it's just that Acuna has so owned the Marlins over the course of his career that it looks like if he gets hit, it always looks like retaliation for something because most likely he probably just did something great in his previous plate appearance against the Marlins. They just can't get him out. But I don't think it's just coincidence. There have clearly been times when it has been intentional. Whether this was one of those times, I don't know for sure. I think the situation, you could say it it may not have been intentional, but just the way the, the Marwins tend to operate with Acuna makes you think that maybe it was and he had homered again. And so it, it looked like it could have been in retaliation for that. So Really, I mean, look, if you can't get a guy out, it's just the the ultimate mark of frustration and impotence, really, is just hitting him with a pitch because the best way to get him back is to get him out, and they can't do that. And so it. that gives us this bad blood between these two teams centered on this one player. And it's kind of interesting because I keep wondering, like, will anyone care about bat flips as soon as nobody minds bat flips? Like so much of the celebration and the expressing your personality and the bat flipping and all of that has been revolving around people being mad about it. Right. And more and more, it seems like everyone accepts it and celebrates it. So if there's no antagonist, then do we even focus so much about bat flips or, or do bat flips and celebrations become old hat? I don't know. And more and more, it seemed like just nobody cares, you know, like Ozuna takes a selfie of himself after hitting a homer or Tatis flips his bat 
And no one really prominent that I saw seemed to be upset about that. There didn't seem to be any ramifications from that. And so I kind of wonder, like, you know, how much of the appeal of that to people has been about it being kind of a, a countercultural move, you know, going up against the old guard. And now that the old guard is sort of unseated and this is ascendant, then maybe it's not as compelling anymore. But the Marwins are, are doing their best to keep it compelling. That was a rich sociological text you just dropped on us between the Thank you. the Marlins or betas because they <laughs> throw at Ronald Acuna to bat flips or are the tool of the ruling class now. I think to that's an interesting point you make, but I do think that even if the bat flip if bat flips are celebrating home runs or or whatever kind of emotional outburst is is more acceptable generally. I think individual instances will still continue to to spark incidents like mm-hmm. like this. There will as much even as bat flips, I think that Rubicon has already been crossed, uh, but there will always be red asses as long as there is right. baseball. And I think that uh, we're going to see some level of retaliation or or escalating uh, escalating showmanship. And I think but that that'll bring this into the entertainment realm where I think that really serves serves the game well. Yeah, and when it is a case where there's history between a player and a team, then there's always the risk that it will kind of cross over from celebration and self-expression to putting the other team or player down, right, and making a point of that. And I don't know if there's a line there, but I think there are degrees maybe of sort of dancing on the grave of the the pitcher you just punished, right? And, and you know, I, I think it's natural probably if, if you give up a big hit and you're feeling bad about that and you see someone celebrating it, then, you know, it, it's going to be inevitable that you might bridle a, a bit at that. And that will probably be the case even more if there is a, a track record between those two teams. Speaking of a track record, you want to move on to the other early afternoon series? Let's a, get into a, the teams with actual long history of not liking each other very much. That is a fantastic segue. So Zach is talking about Oakland and Houston, this West Coast series that is starting at noon or 1230 local time. Uh, one thing I want to uh, highlight here is, first of all, out of the eight series, the the three teams that I said don't really have a chance to advance went two and one. So that's... Uh, that's good. Um, Houston is looking like their, their old selves though. And, uh, so this, uh, this lackluster regular season, all the crisis about pitching, all the crisis about Jose Altuve forgetting how to hit, uh, seems to have been an elaborate rope-a-dope act. I enjoy, I've enjoyed, uh, the discourse of, oh, Altuve is washed. That's only a 60 game sample and it's proved wrong by the first five innings of this series. Um, so anyway, the, Astros are are beating up on Oakland. Uh, this is the series is two nothing. If Oakland does come come back, it'll be definitely be worth talking about. It's possible, but it's uh, I think suffice it to say, extremely unlikely right now. The 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 Astros stars are hitting like stars. Carlos Correa and George Springer are a combined nine for nineteen in this series with four home runs. And I think on the other end, the A's lineup I, we talked about in the playoff preview. We weren't totally sure about it, especially with Matt Chapman out. Matt Olson did not hit as well this year. And not to take away any credit from them, but like game three against the White Sox, they advanced because the White Sox pitchers could not find the strike zone. Sean Murphy's hitting well, but really that was a lot of a lot on the White Sox relievers. 
And I don't know if Oakland has the bats to compete with Correa and Springer when they're hitting like this. I mean, Chris Davis has a couple home runs this series. The ball is flying pretty well, but I think the most surprising aspect of the series to me so far is that Houston's relievers have thrown seven combined shutout innings. And if you look at the pedigree of these relievers, like Anoli Paredes and Christian Javier, these are not guys you would expect to throw shut down postseason innings, but they are. And, th- and that's why the Astros are winning. Yeah. And that's how they had to get through this whole season with more or less success, not as much success as they'd had in previous seasons, but without Verlander, without Osuna, without half of the rest of the bullpen at times, they had to piece it together with a, a bunch of rookies and guys who were maybe promising prospects from the Astros perspective, but not top 100 guys or anything. And and they've done it. They've pieced together this pen that I don't know if it, it holds up to Oakland's, let's say, but in a, a single series, it certainly can. And I think the A's bullpen kind of pulled it together late in game two, but Really, it has struggled a bit, struggled in game one. And, you know, in any given series, you might enter with the better bullpen and not get the better bullpen performance. And the Astros have gotten creative in the past when it comes to using starters in relief. And they've done that to an extent even during the playoffs this year. I mean, Framber Valdez, who was fantastic as the starter in this game, he did it in long relief in the wild card round and was excellent in that role, showing why he was my number two Cy Young pick on my fake uh, yeah. Cy Young I've, ballot. I thought about bringing that up, but then I, no, Ben's going to bring that up on his Yeah, team. I don't know if that was actually the right pick or not, but he's making me look smart. So, of course, I'm going to mention it. So, I mean, when I, when I picked him, I, I mentioned that he was just so important to the staff this year with all of the shorthandedness that they dealt with. And he's showing that now. And it's particularly important because now evidently Zach Greinke is dealing with arm issues too and is not going to be taking the ball in game three. It's going to go to Jose Urquidy. So that'll be a question for future rounds if the Astros make it. Maybe it doesn't matter so much for this round because they're up to nothing right now and maybe they can afford not to get a Greinke start. Yeah, this this bullpen was awful during the regular season. I think they they got camouflaged with some of the pitching struggle, struggles that teams like the Red Sox and the Phillies had. Uh, but there was a lot of inexperience, a lot of injuries, but also just didn't set up the right way. They weren't getting any breaks. And so Urquidy only made five starts this year because he was uh, late arriving to, to camp. Um, Ryan Presley, their one reliable veteran reliever, on at least on the outside, uh, was was ineffective in spurts this year. He's pitched really well uh, in this series. You know, Javier, you know, I think, I mean, he filled in really well in the rotation. I, you know, I don't know if he's like a, a number three starter going forward, but he's somebody who's really stepped up for them and it's been pitching well. So, but anyway, now they can rely on Presley to to close out games when Granky's dealing with uh, with injuries. They can uh, call on Jose Urquidy to to make that start. It's somebody with with playoff experience. So. This was not always the case throughout the regular season. So I think the, uh, I don't know. Do I want to just drive straight through this brick wall of a cliche? Are the Astros peaking at the right time? Is everything falling into place for them? Do they just know how to win? Uh, you know, it, it's it, it's series like this. You know, obviously we mock that notion, but it's series like this that uh, that illustrate why that kind of that kind of reasoning or that kind of conclusion is is so easy to arrive at. Well, they're certainly leaning into some of the 
the nobody believes in us villainy aspect. They're not. It's not. Nobody believes in us. And I think we had uh, a discussion about this when Carlos Correa started you know, speaking of, of trash talk. Uh, when he made his comments after the first round, there's a difference between nobody believes in us and nobody likes us or nobody wants us to win. And Correa, it, in contrast to certain latter-day New England Patriots teams, for instance, is aware of the difference between the two. So, like, is it a dick thing to say? Yeah, but it's at least he's he's accurately describing the situation. I guess I was also referring to the Lance McCullers comments after... The Astros won game one in this series (laughs) (laughs) when he said, quote, we have a good team. We may not have the big names, big bank accounts, but we got guys with balls. And I just want to point out that the Astros have the majors fourth highest payroll. So I don't know what kind of not big bank accounts he's talking about, but uh, I don't know. They're leaning into it. And I I guess that's good to keep interest and have teams uh, have fans rooting against this team. I don't know. Yeah, I um. I do appreciate, and this is something I appreciated about the Astros even before all the the scandals broke, is that they were okay being the heel. I think it's it's good when, like, I don't I don't mind when the bad guys act like the bad guy. I find it kind of insulting when the bad guys try to convince you that they're the good guys or that they're really the underdogs. So from from that perspective, I guess this is kind of frustrating. I will say, in in McCullers' defense, like. Like most teams, the Astros have plenty of guys with balls. And in terms of uh, in terms of big names, like I said this at the time, Jose Altuve only has 10 letters. That's not a very big game so or big name. Yeah, McCullers still seems to think this is the 2015 team. I don't know if he's uh, adjusted his, his mindset appropriately, but I think this team has been sort of living under a, a siege mentality all season, right? And it's one that they created and that that they invited and that they deserve, but it still has to be somewhat mentally and, and psychologically taxing to be hated by everybody for a really long time, maybe less so because there were not fans in the stands. And so they didn't have to be booed by real people. And it's probably not as tough to, you know, have the organist taunt you via song or something, but I still think that after all this time, like you could imagine it wearing them down a bit, just being so disliked. And the fact that they're still using it as motivation, I guess for me, you know, if I were an Astros fan, I'd I'd be happy to see them still using that as fuel instead of being beaten down by it. Right. Because there are a lot of teams like every team looks for some way to motivate itself whether it is hunting up some quote that someone made about them in April, you know, like the the Marlins with their bottom feeders t-shirts, or maybe it's something, some little slight that a, an opposing player made that they seize on and post it in the clubhouse or use it as a rallying cry. And sometimes you could just make it up like CC Sabathia and Jackie Bradley. <laughs> yeah, you for, could. You know, for those of you who need extra motivation to get up for a Red Sox-Yankees game. Right. Or, you know, sometimes there are really good teams that everybody believed in that will insist nobody believed in us. And it's just not true, except in their own heads. In the Astros case, it's true that no one wants them to be here and no one likes them. And so the fact that they are still sort of using that to motivate themselves, I I think probably bodes well for them, if anything. And as we talked about even before the, the series started, like the Astros players are still good. They still have pedigrees. They're not old. They have recent records of success. And unless you really believe that they were never able to hit without knowing what was coming, which I I don't really believe, frankly, 
then yeah, I think I, that's yeah, <laughs> I think that's about as silly a conclusion as, as you can draw from. Yeah, then you know it was not unreasonable to think that they might have a good series or two or a good month in them. And George Springer's postseason OPS now career is up to nine forty three in two hundred fifty plate appearances with seventeen homers. So. Whether that's a true talent or not, he has continued to just really shine at this time of year. I'm honestly surprised it's not higher. Yeah. Like when you started out with nine, I was like, well, it only goes up to four. <laughs> but Zach, I think you were about to say something. No, I, I just think that, you know, these players have pedigree, but particularly given the potential Granky injury, I think the Yankees and Rays are probably the two best teams in the American League right now. Yes. Like maybe this is a way to transition in, into the next series, but I think I would pick whichever team wins that series to beat the Astros, assuming Houston advances. But when you get into those margins, it's not more than 55-45-60-40. The Astros have a real chance at making it back to the World Series now, and I I expected that before the season. I did not expect that when they entered the playoffs at 29-31. and 31. In the interest of getting this podcast out on time and also reserving as much time for the Curly Ogden maneuver as, although it's not really a Curly Ogden maneuver specifically, but let's let's move on to the the Rays and the Yankees. Uh, this was an exciting game. This was it featured two just preposterous home runs by John Carlos Stanton. I looked up the the first one had a, a launch angle of. A, this is how ridiculous it was. It had me going out and looking up exit velocity and launch angle uh, to two metrics that I usually think of as, as trivia rather than instructive. But uh, the the first home run had a 15 degree launch angle. It was one of the 30 lowest launch angles in the Statcast era for uh, a home run, including inside the park home runs. That was an absolute bullet. And then the other one was just one of the the best home runs top to bottom in terms of distance, in terms of noise, in terms of reaction from, from glass now and Zanino and uh, all that happened. And the, the Yankees lost anyway. Yeah, those are the the two types of Stanton home runs, right? They're, they're all one of the two. It's either you can't believe that it got over the fence or you can't believe it stayed in the ballpark, period. It's like he hits the, the line drives at angles that almost no one else can get a ball over the fence because he hits it so hard that it just stays up and keeps carrying and no one else can hit it on a line like that and actually get it out. And then the second one, I think we were all sort of surprised to see that it didn't travel even farther than it was said to have, because off the bat, it just looked like a, an absolute bomb. So I I remember, I mean, the, the last couple postseasons, the story was that Stanton couldn't hit, right? He couldn't hit in the postseason and he looked bad. I mean, he looked like he could get exploited, like you could pitch him with good postseason pitching and he kept striking out and coming up empty in big spots. And now suddenly he is on fire and has hit home runs in four consecutive games. And he's kind of carrying this lineup, which looks a lot different when he's in it and when Judge is in it too. Yeah, Ben, I'm just going to come right out and say it. Like I generally trust that StatCast's cameras know what they're doing, but I don't believe that that ball only (laughs) traveled 458 feet. I mean, that was up there with Pujols off Brad Lidge and Bonds off Troy Percival is just some of the longest home runs I've ever seen. Some of the most titanic and impressive off the bat. And he also hit a a grand slam in the ninth inning of game one. And I know last game was closer and more exciting, but game one was a four to three game until the ninth inning when Stanton's grand slam broke it open. And that one was great. You had 
Cole and Snell uh, trading, well, <laughs> trading home runs, but then also strikeouts. Garrett Cole getting up over 100 to to stem a bases-loaded threat in the fifth inning. And I think this has been a really great series, both games. And kind of as competitive as we expected, both teams have good lineups. Both teams have uh, pretty good bullpens. And I think it's tied 1-1, which is where that seems right to me after the quality of these two games. Yeah, Yeah, I think I agree. Rachel McDaniel at Fangrass mentioned that I think four, only four of the 24 runs scored in this series have come not on home runs. It's an extremely home run centric series, as are some of the others, as is LA San Diego. It, it seems like the ball is carrying incredibly well in some of these parks, or who knows, maybe the ball is just different because you can never actually count on any kind of consistency when it comes to the behavior of the baseball these days. So let's talk about the the Yankees pitching setup. They went with Garrett Cole in game one. That seems like the obvious, uh, the obvious thing to do. And then they announced Davey Garcia, the rookie uh, who's had really incredible stuff, but sort of inconsistent results uh, in his rookie year. But still, that seemed like a solid game two option just because of how talented Garcia is because of uh, because it sets up Masier to not get to go into game three and possibly go deeper into the game than Garcia would have. Otherwise we've been talking about maybe this might be a thing where the Marlins, for instance, are splitting up Alcantara and Sixto Sanchez, where you want your guys who can go deeper into games to be spread out. So you're not using your entire bullpen uh, on back-to-back days. And then after just one inning, Aaron Boone pulled the surprise switcheroo and brought in Jay Happ and uh, it, it didn't work. And I think that, it's easy to look at this and just look at the results and, and uh, um, Garcia allowed the home run in the first inning Hap allowed two runs, home runs of his own walk, three batters. It's easy to look at the results and just say the results didn't work, but there were some very real process problems with, with the way that this worked out. I, I think one problem is I might prefer Garcia to Hap at this point. I know that Hap pitched well down the stretch, but those performances still masked kind of, middling underlying numbers and especially given the pitch mix that J-Hab has it's a lot of kind of low 90s fastballs and the Rays hammered lefty fastballs this year and I know looking at team-wide stats can be kind of misleading but they really hit them well and you saw that again last night there are a lot of batters in Tampa's lineup that you just can't feed a steady diet of fastballs to even the left-handed batters last night who Hap was ostensibly designed to exploit hit him well more than half of them reach base yeah and he's not like he's not a lefty killer he's he's got a platoon split but he pitches well to both left and right-handed batters he's not the kind of guy you have to hide the platoon split the problem with hap at this point is career like you said zach is that the danger that he throws that low 90s fastball and even mike zanino can hit it to what would have been a ridiculous dis- distance had Stanton not gone even farther in in uh, the couple innings surrounding that. I mean, the big problem for me is the comments that, that Garcia, Boone, and Happel made after the game. Like This looks like a pretty, as close to the Curly Ogden maneuvers you can come with the three batter minimum, but you know, I had questions about, you know, Garcia had the, th- had the, had 
fulfilled the three batter minimum before G-Man Choi came up in the bottom of the first. He could have put Happ in there, but Garcia faced three left-handed batters, and so he cleared most of the raised lefties before Happ, uh, Happ even got into the game. And then there's the the comments that, that Happ and Garcia and Boone made after the game, like I said, where it didn't seem like he got buy-in. It didn't seem like Happ in particular was on board with this plan. And when you're doing something unorthodox, you know, Ben, you can probably speak to this better than, better than anybody. If you're doing something unorthodox within the context of a, a baseball game, you've got to get your players to believe in it. And it didn't seem like like uh, Boone got that out of Hap in particular, maybe Garcia as well. Yeah. And, you know, sure, to some extent, you can blame Hap for that, I think, because in the postseason, you just have to be flexible. I think, you know, there's no real room for ego or for saying, I think I should get the ball here. And it's not like Hap at this point in his career is such an incredible pitcher that he has that status where he deserves to get the ball over the rookie or, or something like that, just based on tenure. So I think he probably should have just said, sure, whatever, put me in and, and I'll pitch. And to his credit, he said that his objection to the idea didn't affect his mindset when he was in the game, that once he was in, he pitched the same way he would have anyway. But who knows whether that's entirely true. Like if he had any reservations about this, then maybe there was some part of his mind that was holding back a bit or didn't prepare as well as he could have because he was sort of stewing over this decision. So I think that's true. You should take that into account if your player is not on board with this to the extent that he's going to kind of make that clear after the game. Then if it's a a thing where you're probably not getting a huge advantage anyway, maybe you just hold off on doing it. I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic because the Yankees had to use these guys to get through this series, presumably. Like I have seen some people say, well, they should have started Tanaka in game two. It doesn't really matter when you start Tanaka, does it? I mean, it's a, a five-game series with no off days. So if you start Tanaka in game two or game three, you only get to use him once. I don't know that it matters that much when you're going to use him. And because they don't have James Paxton to deploy here, they have to figure out how to navigate this race lineup with Garcia and Hap, neither of whom is close to a, a sure thing. So I get why if you have to use them, you might look for any small edge to make it more advantageous to you. But, you know, as you said, it it wasn't like the Rays were using their nine left-handed hitters lineup in this game. So they didn't really bite as much as maybe Boone might have hoped. And so by the time Hap comes in, it doesn't seem like you're getting that huge an advantage. And maybe you just want to use Garcia a little longer. It's Something I'm sympathetic because, you know, the day before, I think people maybe fairly criticized Cash for sticking with Snell a little long. And that's the same conversation we were having earlier about managers being conservative because of the lack of off days. So Boone was not doing that here. And if Hap comes in and pitches well, it's probably a different conversation, right? Because he's not going to give negative post-game quotes and no one's going to judge it based on the results. I think so much of the perception of this does come down to the results, even if the process wasn't ideal. And to be clear, the process was certainly a, a group effort here. It's not like Boone just decided to do this on his own. This would be something that the Yankees' whole brain trust and, and front office and coaching staff would probably have a, a lot of input on. And I think that sets up a really interesting strategy and pitching dynamic for the rest of this series. I wonder what the Yankees do in game four after they start Tanaka today in game three. I think Jordan Montgomery is actually quite good, even though he had inconsistent results 
this year in terms of runs allowed. He had 47 strikeouts to nine walks. And if you look at that strikeout minus walk ratio, that puts him in the company of guys who we consider aces or Cy Young contenders like Framber Valdez, Dylan Bundy, Hyunjin Ryu, Carlos Carrasco, Sonny Gray. So even though he gives up a decent amount of home runs, I think he's a, a pretty good pitcher. I could even see them kind of piggybacking with Montgomery and Debbie Garcia again because Garcia only pitched one inning. He's probably available in two days. And from Tampa's perspective, they haven't even announced a starter after game three where they'll use Charlie Morton. And that's because Tampa's entire pitching staff for the last several years has been built for a moment like this. So I think we could see a lot of a lot more in-game strategizing between the two managers. You'll probably, uh, if it goes game five, see Garrett Cole on short rest. So there isn't as much decision-making there from Aaron Boone, but Cole also hasn't thrown on short rest in his career. And this is just another area where the lack of off days really matters because normally you could have a, a guy throw in game one and then game five without any concern. Now there's really a lot of juggling and, and a balancing act between how much to stretch your best relievers. I think this series has been, been a perfect example of that. Game one in the ninth inning, Tampa was trailing by just a run and you could have easily envisioned them putting in one of their top relievers like Diego Castillo or Nick Anderson to try and hold the lead to one and force the Yankees to use or all this Chapman in the bottom of the ninth that didn't happen they left John Curtis in for way too long he allowed the Stanton home run and Chapman was allowed to sit and that could reap huge repercussions on the rest of the series you mentioned because you mentioned Jordan Montgomery potentially pitching in a playoff game. I would be remiss if I did not mention his uh, excellent work on behalf of the South Carolina Gamecocks in the 2012 College World Series semifinal against Arkansas. Continue. Uh, that was, I, I have nothing to respond to that. I'm just disappointed you took off your South Carolina baseball cap in the middle of it's this hot recording. Here. I, I, I haven't gotten a haircut since before spring training, and hats are uncomfortable now. Um, where are we going to go from here? Sorry, I just heard Jordan Montgomery and completely blanked on everything that you said after this. Oh, one last thing we should hit. Uh, speaking of things that that are getting hit, is anything that gets in front of Randy Rosarena and G Man Choi. G Man Choi, long a, a favorite of mine, uh, is an on base machine doing that that bendy millennial Kevin Euclid thing. Yeah, it's a, a lot of fun to watch Choi. Always, of course. I mean, Rosarena is uh, Rosarena is very good. He's just a really good hitter, I think. I don't know if Choi, I, I wouldn't know if I'd describe him as a, a really good hitter, at least by the standards of his position. He is a, a very entertaining player, but uh, he's not that great a hitter for a first baseman, but he is hitting really well right now. And those two have combined to just be unstoppable in the middle of this lineup. And it's funny because when the broadcast was making a big deal of Choi's record against Garrett Cole, like I always like when the ace has some nemesis who is not the nemesis you'd expect. But usually it doesn't last very long. And as soon as everyone becomes aware of that history, then the guy starts going 0 for 4 with two strikeouts and a, a double play because that's what happens. And yeah, that's not G what happens. Choi isn't in most series. hitters, though, is no, he? No, Choi beat the odds and beat Garrett Cole with yet another home run. So I, I hope that uh, that storyline continues, That uh, especially because Choi had a, a very brief audition with the Yankees a couple of years ago and couldn't stick. And uh, they let him go and, and he moved on and he's moved on from team to team. And he has found a home with Tampa Bay where I think historically speaking, 
Tampa has had uh, either low standards or a low success rate when it comes to offense from first basemen and DHs, which has been one of the things that has held them back. But this year, they have managed to build a good offense around their usually great, uh, typically great run prevention. Yeah, one thing that one last thing about the the Cole versus Choi thing before we move on, like he is, I don't know how much of this is just solving backwards from the results, but you look at the the type of hitter he is, it makes sense he would do well against somebody like Garrett Cole because he's good plus back control plus batting eye. He's not going to get himself out. He's not going to overswing. He's not going to have a problem with velocity. So like, it's not as surprising maybe to people who don't love G-Man Choi as much as I do. It, it's it's surprising, but uh, it's not that surprising to me that he would be the type of hitter that would, that would do well against Garrett Cole. All right, let's move on to the final series. Uh, LA and San Diego, this is, I mean, this is a problem for for San Diego. They got Mike Clevenger on the the division series roster, and he lasted, uh, I think it was twenty four pitches until the elbows started barking again. And uh, they tied the all time uh, playoff record for most pitchers used in a game in the last game of the first round series against St. Louis, and then tied it again uh, on Tuesday night in Game One. They're playing like a really good team but they're playing like a really good team with the, their two best starting pitchers out. And I don't know how sustainable that is in a five game series with no off days against a team like the Dodgers. Yeah. And I don't even think this necessarily speaks poorly of roster construction. You take any team in baseball and remove their top two starters. They're going to be in trouble. Even this Dodgers team, I like their rotation, but if you remove Kershaw and Bueller and all of a sudden you have, you know, Tony Gonsolin starting game one and Dustin May starting game two, those guys are good, but they could not match up against a healthy Lamette and Clevenger. So it's kind of what you would expect when the team is missing its top two pitchers. I, I don't think this will be the last playoff series that these Padres play against these Dodgers. I think they will probably match up a number of times going forward and hopefully have more health because does San Diego have a chance in this series? Yes, they just beat the Cardinals without these pitchers either. But I think there are two big differences between those series. The first is that against St. Louis, San Diego needed to win just two games. Now they need to win three, and that just really strains the ability to throw Rosenthal and Pomeranz and all those relievers multiple days in a row. They pitched three days in a row against St. Louis. They're not going to be able to pitch every game in this series. And number two is just the Dodgers are better than the Cardinals. The Dodgers have better hitters than the Cardinals. The Dodgers have better pitchers than the Cardinals. The Dodgers quietly have the best bullpen in the National League, and they're a complete team. So the fact that you take San Diego, which was close to as good as the Dodgers, but not quite good enough, and then remove this huge part of their team, and it's pretty clear that they don't match up anymore, which is a shame because I picked them hoping that Lamette and Clevenger would be healthy and we'd have uh, a full stock of talent in this series up up until uh it was was it the fifth or sixth inning when that Cronenworth throw sort of took Hosmer into into Cody Bellinger and then the the Dodgers blew this game open they had a, a decent shot at winning or a decent shot at, they were in control up until the Dodgers broke the broke the game open in the sixth inning even with Clevenger out because Walker Walker Bueller didn't pitch that well either so you know you could see it but it's just that loss using that many pitchers in in game one that's going to be a tough hurdle to overcome against and this this is going to sound stupid stupider the more we say it but against an opponent as good as the Dodgers 
you can't afford to to let opportunities like that slide, even for a team as good as San Diego. Yeah, I was going to say the cliche about you can't give teams extra outs or give good teams extra outs is really getting a workout this postseason between Hosmer dropping the ball from Cronenworth and Marcus Semien's mistake that led to that Astros rally or even Nick Madrigal's error in the wild card round. And like all cliches or like most cliches, there is some truth to it. I mean, the Dodgers. There's a lot of truth yeah. in that. And I think you're being kind of dismissive <laughs> of of like a really important statement about uh, about the importance of playing clean against good teams, particularly in the postseason. Yeah, it, it's hard enough to beat the Dodgers when you don't make any mistakes because they're so good. So when you make mistakes, then it makes it even easier for them. And the Padres got through a game in the wild card round that they didn't have Clevenger or Lamette for by going with nine pitchers in nine innings. And it worked. And in this game, they tried to do it again, not by design. They had hoped that Clevenger could go longer, but he threw only 24 pitches and had to be pulled. And so they tried to pull that off again and made a valiant attempt at it. But it's difficult to do, and it's especially difficult to do against the Dodgers, who just work you so hard. I mean, it's, you know, they they chase less than any other team. It's them, the Yankees, and the Padres, actually. They're the best teams at, at not, really, it, it's kind of the equivalent of not giving the other team extra outs. It's not helping the pitcher out by chasing pitches that are not going to be strikes. The Dodgers don't do that, and so they will keep wearing you down, and they will keep drawing walks, and they will not bite at pitches that other teams will, and eventually they will break through, and there will be some sort of rally because you just can't keep them down for long. And so now it's not really clear what the Padres are going to do for the rest of this series pitching-wise, and meanwhile you have the Dodgers who can just roll Clayton Kershaw right out there and you yeah, have to sort if of <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening to this listening to this on Thursday, I presume that you woke up this morning and saw in the paper that Kershaw threw seven scoreless innings and everything is fine. <laughs> and we don't have to write that goddamn article again this year. Yeah. The, sorry, the I interrupted were the, you then, but the Padres were the best hitting team against breaking balls this year, and Clayton Kershaw throws more breaking balls after the first pitch than any other starting pitcher. So It's not an ideal matchup for him. It's certainly not the Brewers matchup. You know, the Brewers were just not a a good hitting team by postseason standards and the Padres, he'll have a a harder time of it. One narrative I do want to push back on, though, is I've seen some people discussing that maybe the Dodgers know how to get Tatis out, uh, for instance, because Tatis, I think he was just one for four last night. And during the regular season, he hit just 205, 244, 385, which is not a Tatis line we would expect. But I wrote about this earlier this week. Basically, you can't use regular season performance against an opponent to predict how well that player does against the team in uh, a subsequent playoff appearance. The correlation between regular season batting line and postseason batting line for interdivisional matchups is just 0.02. And that is on a scale in which zero means no relationship at all, and one means a perfect relationship. So the relationship is basically zero. In essence, just because Tatis or some other players might have struggled against the Dodgers in the regular season does not mean they will struggle against them in the playoffs. So I don't think the Dodgers have figured anything out about Tatis. I think he's just had a couple bad games against them. And if the Padres are to get back in the series, I think they will do so on the back of their offense, which 
as we saw against St. Louis, can turn a deficit into a big lead in a matter of like five at bats. Uh, was that a literal regression that, that you were mentioning? I guess so. Yeah, regression <laughs> to to zero. Yeah, so, and the other thing about that is hitting 200 and slugging 380 or whatever it was you said is not like if they knew how to get him out like this is not like him going 0 for 41 you know like that's within the the realm of what you could expect Tatis to hit obviously on the low side but take any 10 game sample in, in his career and you'll probably find more than a few where he's, where he's hitting 200 and slugging 380 um yeah I mean this is as much as we were we were talking about this being an uphill climb for the Padres. You know they've still got a lot of opportunities to. I don't know if they, they if they get to Kershaw tonight, then then obviously this the series is completely wide open. So we'll we'll see how it goes. But this was obviously not the not the start that the Padres wanted. I think for those of us who wanted this game to or this series to go five games, uh, not the start that the rest of us wanted either. Yeah, and if the Padres do fight their way back, then maybe it's even more exciting because they had to get there this way. But it is sort of disappointing that they have one hand or, or really two hands, the hands of Clevenger and Lumet tied behind their backs because we wanted this to be just the, the fully operational Padres going against the Dodgers and trying to unseat them because these two teams have never faced each other in the playoffs before. And I don't think they've ever really had a time when they were both this good at the same time. And there's, uh, you know, the seeds of a real rivalry here because these teams are going to continue to be great probably for the foreseeable future and, and be fighting for division titles. So I would have liked this to be both teams coming in with their entire rosters and let the best team win. And as it is, the the Padres are kind of compromised here and having to work around here, which, you know, is not to say that they can't still make this a series. It really stinks that the Brad Hand is no longer on the team for those two hands tied behind their <laughs> yeah, back. That's true. Would have come in handy. Wow. Here we go. All right. Okay. Well, congratulations on whatever that was uh before we actually hit the last bullet point on on our outline uh while the or i guess this news broke a little bit after the the last padres cardinals game but uh news broke that bob gibson the hall of fame pitcher uh had died at the age of 84 uh after suffering from uh from cancer uh i mean we talk we sort of mentioned this with tom Seaver, and gibson's one of these guys too where like he's one he's one of those old-timey players where there's like this ineffable quality where you, you can just so easily imagine, you know, picture what he was doing, the image of him with the big, you know, the, the, um, falling off the man with the delivery, with the long red sleeves, you know, throwing in at batters, just the toughness, the cool, um, yeah, really incredible pitcher, beloved deservedly by Cardinals fans in particular, but baseball fans in general. I don't know that there's a, uh, baseball, baseball fan out there with a, a bad word to say about him. Yeah, I mean, it's sad that we're talking about him for this reason now, but when do we not talk about Bob Gibson for some reason in October, just given his postseason track record and being the World Series MVP twice and just all the other accolades and accomplishments in his career. And just like an all-around player in a way that we don't really see anymore because he was a multi-sport star, probably could have been an NBA player if he had wanted to and ended up pursuing baseball, but he was a really excellent hitter by pitcher standards and also a really excellent fielder, despite the fact that he fell off the mound that way. His reflexes were just so good that he somehow overcame being in 
what looked like completely impossible fielding positions. So he could kind of do it all. And, you know, he has the persona and the intimidation factor, and that's a big part of his legend. Although I think the reputation for him being a headhunter is actually pretty overblown. Like he he didn't actually hit that many batters, you know. So I think uh, we might be inclined to judge him harshly for that today if we thought he was actually trying to hit guys regularly. But he didn't really do that. I mean, he might have pitched inside and, and not back down, but he was not really going after guys any more than the typical pitcher in that day. And I think his 1968 season is the kind of season that even in 50 years, we will still consider maybe the best pitching season of all time. It's just hard to imagine topping that performance, not just because of the record ERA or all of the shutouts, but because of how he pitched in comparison to the way people pitch now between uh, June and August. So a span of three months that year, he pitched 18 games and he went nine innings and 17 of them. And in the 18th, he went 11 innings. So he never went out uh, in 1968. He uh, finished that season by going into the World Series and striking out 17 batters in game one, which is still a record. You can actually watch that full game on YouTube. And I think that's part of what makes Gibson so special to someone like me, who obviously never had a chance to watch him play, is he, and and I guess Seeper fits this definition too, is part of the first generation of all-time pitchers where you can watch their full games and watch highlight reels and their performances in a way that just isn't accessible for older pitchers like Walter Johnson, star of my beloved 1924 World Series. So I think that that brings a tactile feel and an awe to this to the sensation of watching Gibson pitch, where he's almost no less real than someone like Jacob deGrom or Pedro Martinez, these historically great pitchers that I was able to watch myself because Gibson has those highlights available to me. Yeah, my introduction, The you mentioned the Game one of the 1968 World Series. My introduction to Bob Gibson, with as with so many important historical figures in baseball, was through the Ken Burns documentary, which came out when uh, when I was seven, and I taped off PBS and watched hundreds of thousands of times in, in my childhood. And I remember uh, Bob Costas talking about watching that game on TV as a teenager and being able to feel the intensity uh, of Bob Gibson through the TV and it was in his living room. I mean the. Uh, Ben, you mentioned him. It's a hitter, home run, and while pitching a complete game in Game 7 of the 1967 World Series, he went eight innings in his first postseason start in the 1964 World Series and then ended his uh, postseason career on a run of eight consecutive uh, complete games, including a 10-inning one in that 64 World Series. I mean, in in some respects, in terms of, of the power and the precision and the... You know, you look at guys like him and Steve Carlton. They're they pitched like modern pitchers way back in the in the sixties and seventies. And so, in, in that respect, they do make him like this uh, anymore. He was the a role model for a generation of pitchers. But you know, in many other mo- more important respects, uh, they really don't. Yeah, and they had to change the rules because Bob Gibson was too good, oh, that's <laughs> and, true. and his contemporaries were too good. And maybe today's pitchers are too good, and and they'll have to change the rules in some way too to combat the strikeouts. So that's another connection. And 
you know, like Seaver, like Lou Brock, other legends who were recently lost. I, I think Gibson sort of maintained a, a connection to the game, even though he was sort of a, a famously private person, which is almost an oxymoron. But everyone cites the Roger Angel piece where Angel got inside a, his head a little bit more than he had allowed other writers to in the past. I, I think all those guys really stayed around the game, whether it was through broadcasting or through being team ambassadors or forging some relationship and and connection to current players. And so it's not as if they rode off into the sunset and the old old timers tell us about them and and we look at their baseball reference page and that's the only awareness we have of them. They were all really present right up until the end almost. And so they were, you know, I think real to younger player, younger fans in a way that some players who just sort of disappear from the stage once they're, they're done playing do not. Yeah. You saw that in, uh, the night that the news of Gibson's death broke, like, you know, Jack yeah. Flaherty, who had just gotten knocked out of the playoffs, said as much uh, on uh, his either Twitter or Instagram, but you know, mentioned Gibson as someone that that he had gotten to know a little bit as a, um, you know, as a, a that kind of team ambassador role. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's I I think it's it's very cool. You know, obviously, like players don't athletes don't owe us anything, particularly after they're retired. But it's it was nice to see. You know, you mentioned Seaver and Brock and guys like this who, who find a way to to remain present and sort of, you know, serve as, as like living reminders of history. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a really incredible ball player. Um, yeah, one of the the real iconic figures of the the mid 20th century in, in baseball. Um, so, yeah, we felt like it was appropriate to pay tribute to him here. All right. That will do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thank you, Zach. Until next time. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thank you to Ronald Acuna, George Springer, and Curly Ogden for giving us stuff to talk about today. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.